Today on the show, we're talking about cutting spending and conquering debt. Welcome to the Simple Money Solutions Podcast, where we focus on your money from a Canadian perspective. This podcast is produced weekly and released every Monday. Show notes for every episode can be found at livelifesimple.ca. Now let's get on with the show. Hey everyone, I'm your host Courtney and joined with me today, as always, is my co-host Trevor. As mentioned in the introduction, today we're talking about cutting spending and conquering debt. We're now a few weeks into 2017 and on the top of everyone's mind, I'm sure, is the idea of cutting spending and conquering the debt that you have. It's a new year, so why not start it off right by really hammering down on your finances? Today's article is called To Conquer Debt, Get Out of Your Head and Create a Written Financial Plan by David Hodges from the Canadian Press. In David Hodges' words, financial planner Annie Kivik has one simple piece of advice for anyone struggling with money, worries, and debt stress in the new year. Get out of your head and start creating a financial plan. Most people actually have a pretty good understanding of their fixed costs, but they might not have them written down, says Ms. Kvick, a certified money coach in North Vancouver, BC. It's easy to say, oh, I think my cable bill is $145 a month when it's actually $175. All these things add up in the big run. Jamie Kallenbeck, Manager Director of Tax and Estate Planning for CIBC Wealth Advisory Service, agrees. He points to a recent online survey conducted for the bank showing that while Canadians' number one goal for 2017 is to reduce debt, only a quarter also said they plan to create a household budget to do this. Here are some tips for slaying the spending dragon and conquering debt. Evaluate non-essential spending. When it comes to avoiding debt, one of the biggest obstacles Mr. Kolmbeck has observed across all income levels is prioritizing discretionary over non-discretionary spending, or put another way, failing to distinguish between needs and wants. That's when people get into trouble, he says. You know someone buys a car that's more expensive than they might otherwise be able to afford, or they eat out more, or they spend more on gifts that's not part of a budget. To steer clear of spending traps, Ms. Kovic advises people to review their finances and figure out how much money is coming in and going out. Start by looking at your credit card and debit statements, she says, zeroing in on automatic payments for reoccurring bills to have a better understanding of all your fixed costs. Then start scrutinizing items such as gym memberships, streaming services, or wireless plans and ask yourself if you're using some of these things or if they can be scaled back. Once you have a realistic spending plan that you can stick to, which accounts for all of your fixed expenses, then you can determine how much is left over and start debt repayment plan with, Ms. Kovic says. Number two is to focus on high interest debt. Anyone with consumer debt, such as credit card debt, which is typically at higher interest rates than long-term secured loans, such as mortgages, should make paying it off a priority, says Mr. Kolenbeck. When you're Putting things on credit cards, you're looking at interest rates of around 20%, he says. If people aren't fully paying their credit card bills every month, then they're carrying a balance on a regular basis, and the interest expense can really put a dent in a household budget. Number three is make room for fun. As Ms. Kovic says in one of the key reasons why people often fail with debt repayment plans is that our budget allows no room for aspirational. You need to have some kind of nugget, something you're dreaming toward, a goal, she says. 
The danger of solely focusing on debt repayment over an extended period is that you may start the slippery slope of accumulating debt again because you haven't achieved the right spending balance. Part of figuring out where you want your, your money to go after fixed costs should include things like a vacation or an upcoming birthday party, Ms. Kovic says. So set aside $100 a month for a trip and $75 for fun stuff, she suggests. It's about creating a plan you can stick with. Number four is seek assistance. Don't be afraid to tweak your plans after trying out a new spending budget for a few months, says Ms. Kovic, but also consider getting help if you can't do it on your own. A first step could include finding an accountability partner, whether that's a spouse or a friend or family members if you're single, she says. And if that doesn't work, engage a professional who can motivate you, as Mr. Kallenbeck. A financial advisor has the expertise in helping people with financial priorities and getting out of debt and putting together a financial plan, he says. So that's the end of the article by David Hodge entitled To Conquer Debt, Get Out of Your Head and Create a Financial Plan from the Canadian Press. So Trevor, what was your overall impression of that article? Yeah, I think it was a good article. It's certainly relevant to this time of year when a lot of people have probably racked up some some form of consumer debt due to, due to the holiday season. I agree with a, a lot of their points. Some of them are not, not 100%. So we'll work through the article and then you can point out to our listeners things that you differ on in comparison to the, uh, the experts in this article. So moving to the, the first category, evaluate non-essential spending. I, I personally like the point of discretionary over non-discretionary spending and really, really seeing the difference between needs and wants, as we always talk about on the show. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's the wants that, gets every, that will get everybody in trouble. Uh, focusing on your needs... Rather than your wants, is gonna you're gonna just be a happier person overall. If you if you just if you think of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, and if if you focus on those, I mean it sounds uh, uh, like a deprived life, but focusing on needs as opposed to wants, because the wants is a never-ending cycle. You know, you uh, you you introduce a want into your life, something shiny, some electronic gadget. As soon as that gets incorporated in your day-to-day life and activities. It loses its 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 newness. It's it's uh, the spark that it gave you when you bought it is is soon gone, and then you're moving on to the next want. So wants is a vicious slippery slope. Trevor, on average, how many people do you think actually have a, an idea and our understanding of how much comes in and how much goes out, money wise, and how important do you feel this is to know? You know. So I work in personal. I work. I work in corporate finance, and so I work with a lot of financial people. And when we talk about uh, our personal finances, I mean we don't talk in great detail, but you know, someone might say, "Oh, my my cable bill came in. I can't believe how much cable costs now." And they're always shocked by how much it is, and it it's that you can tell they're only op- you know sort of reading that bill periodically. They're not looking every single one. They'll just happen to have a moment of open the envelope and they go, "Wow, cable's gone up." So they have these automatic um, payments coming out of their accounts. So when you automate your financial life, you're you're really uh, you, you've you've sort of committed to not looking at it. So in my, it's this sounds counterproductive, but I truly believe that you should every bill should be paid manually. You know, be it you have to go into your bank account and, and physically pay every bill. Don't 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 sign up for automatic payment on anything. It forces you to look at each thing. That that would be step one, but 
I, I track every expense. I, look, I go through each receipt and categorize. Like if I go to Walmart to get groceries and I pick up a few uh, non-grocery type items, I'll take that receipt and I'll break it down and, and, and itemize the groceries versus whatever else I bought. And it's the only way, if, the only way you, you can hope to change your financial situation is to know where you currently stand. And without that, you're just guessing. I'm going to sound like a critical listener right now, Trevor, because I want to be that. But that sounds like it takes an awfully long time. Well, it, it does take a lot of effort. It really does. You have to commit uh, regular intervals of time to it. But if you aren't telling your money what to do, your money is telling you what to do. Like you, you work hard for your money. You spend a lot of time. You spend more time working than anything else if you're employed full time. That, that is precious that money, in essence, is your time. You gave up your time for that money. So you don't want to just spend it haphazardly. It is, it, it, if you think of the amount of time you put into earning the money, the amount of time I'm suggesting people put into managing it is just a fraction. That's a really great point that you raised. I mean, people, people value money so much, but they don't think about what they're doing with it, which is so counterintuitive. Like, I guarantee... Anybody who, who doesn't have a written financial budget, when I say written, I'm talking not on a pen and paper, but maybe on a spreadsheet, even as basic as that, tracking how much they spend in, in various, uh, various categories, uh, when they do it, I guarantee they're going to learn something they didn't know, always. And going back to the automatic payment, that almost sounds like you're living life passively, which is never a good idea. No, uh, and you're just letting you're letting your financial life happen to you rather than being proactive and making conscious decisions. And when you let life happen to you, it, it it's without direction, it's without a plan, and you may not like the destination you get to as a result. Great point. I do want to zero in on the idea of fixed expenses. I know our listeners out there are probably wondering to themselves, but Trevor, I have specific expenses that are fixed. And how fixed are they? And what, what can they do to maybe lower those fixed expenses or change those fixed expenses? Are they truly fixed? Well, i just like to say fixed is a very relative term, relative to time. All expenses are variable over uh, you know, your lifetime, right? They're, none of them are fixed. And when people talk about their fixed expenses, they, they describe them as a, uh, something that can't be changed. When you, you actually made decisions to get into a position to have those fixed expenses, you could make the same decisions to get out of them. So if, if somebody's income is completely consumed by all their fixed expenses, then they have to stop being fixed expenses. You need to change those. They need to become uh, smaller fixed expenses, or some of them become, become variable. For example, people will refer to cable TV as a fixed expense, and they would call it fixed expense because it's the same amount every month for most people. So it's constant. Constant is not fixed. Constant is a is a is a conscious decision that I'm going to spend this every month on cable, but it uh, it is actually a variable cost. You could choose to discontinue your cable, so it's not fixed. Fixed is again. Relatively speaking, your mortgage payment is somewhat fixed because you've made a commitment to pay for your house over however many years. Uh, you buy a car. Now, 
you've made a commitment to make car payments every month until that car is paid off, but you could choose to sell that car. So fixed is fixed by choice. So essentially, there are way more variable costs, loosely, if you use that word very loosely, costs, than there are fixed. Oh, they are. Uh, I, I think, you know, an, I, variable and fixed is a good way to look at things. Discretionary and non-discretionary is a good way to look at things. Conscious and unconscious is another way to look at things. You you want all of your expenses to be conscious decisions, not impulsive, not, uh, you know, you're... You buy a car, and as a result, you have to pay for insurance. When you buy the car, you have to think about the insurance. They all have to be conscious per spending decisions. So I think a, a third dimension of this would be conscious and subconscious spending. And I know a big issue with this, uh, this uh, category is in individuals rationalizing purchases to themselves. Trevor, what are some crazy, crazy rationalizations that you've heard in your experiences with people purchasing things and justifying it. Well, the, the biggest one is when you buy a car, like a new car. And, I mean, you get into a, a showroom and you start foaming at the mouth at these fancy cars. And you, you, the salespeople, they've been trained to play on your emotions and get you revved up, get you, in, you know, seated in the car, take it for a test drive, to the point where it's, it's very hard to, to say no. Uh, I've also been to... Uh, RV shows, uh, recreational vehicle shows, and you start walking through these motor homes and people start, you know, describing monthly payments rather than the total cost of the vehicle. And those are, those are times where you, you need to be strong. I mean, you're dealing with people who have been trained, extensively trained to identify when someone's having a weak moment and, and, and a, get a pen in their hand, get them to sign something. I mean, that, that's, that's, the, probably the most common dangerous place. What I'm sensing here is then emotion plays such a big role in even your personal finances. Well, when we talk about personal finance, it's personal. So in your emotions is a big part of it. I mean, find me somebody who's not emotionally attached to their home at some level. Uh, there's a lot of people who are emotionally attached to their cars. Personal finance is personal. So we, you, you, can't, you can't take the, the personal out of it. And later in this article, I, I'm going to mention it now because we're talking about emotion. They talked about how to uh, uh, debt reduction and that you should focus on the uh, highest interest rate debt first when you're reducing your debt. And that's called a debt avalanche approach. I'm a bigger fan of what's called the debt snowball, where you tackle the smallest debt first, regardless of the interest rate. And the reason I say that is there's an emotional mindset when you, every time you conquer a, a debt so you if you pay off a small debt first that's a, that's a win right you you get that debt out of your life it's one less person you owe money to and that is a an approach that works effectively because it, there's an emotional impact on, on on you know eliminating a debt having a win is that the advice you've given yourself over the years or something you've learned or have you ever been in the situation where you've had to make that decision of what debt to pay off first? Well, so I'm debt free now. And if I would have known what debt free felt like, uh, you know, having hindsight, it, the, the freedom you have, the, the way you approach your job. I mean, when you don't have debt, the ground you walk on feels different. It sounds crazy, but it, it's something that I, 
from from when I had my first job until I paid off my mortgage, I had a debt. So I I I was carrying debt for, you know, decades, and you just forget. You you become numb to it, and it just becomes part of your everyday life. But when you actually are rid of it, the world looks different. It really does. And and so, I I I didn't apply the debt snowball approach to eliminating my debts. But looking back, I wish I had. It would it, it would have created a a lot more motivation. It definitely sounds like the better route to take when you're approaching your credit card debt. Well, no, it, no Trevor. You know, if you just apply math to it and you say, you know, why would I incur more interest expense, uh, you know, and not pay off that high interest credit card first instead of tackling my low interest student loan? Just say, you know, I can do math like everybody else. But the psychological impact of, you know, ridding one debt collector out of your life is far greater than the the interest savings that you may you may save between those two uh, loans. Definitely. Moving through the article, I want to just hear your take on finding the right balance and how do you know when you have that right balance of of fun and and being responsible and what does that mean to you? Well, you know, I I'm guilty of of not having that balance. Uh, I, I I've sacrificed sort of maybe a, a fun life to, to, to reduce my debt. Look, I, d- I don't regret it, but I, I think there's a compromise in there somewhere. I'm sort of a, the type of person where once I get doing something, I can do it for a long time. I don't like to change. So if I get in a pattern of not spending money, I can stay in that pattern of not spending money for, for a long time. But once I get into a pattern of spending money, I want to stay in that pattern of spending money. You know, the endorphins that kick in every time you buy yourself something new is very addictive. Uh, so if if you can sort of stop from, it's almost like the effect eating sugar has on your brain. It's You just want more and more and more of it. So I, I, I'm going to say maybe I'm weak-minded that way where I'm better to completely deprive, deprive myself of uh, international fancy vacations because if I get a taste of it a little bit, I'm going to want more of it. So I'm going to say it's it's a personal weakness, probably. Because they do say how if you if you do one extreme or the other, you're really not teaching yourself anything or learning anything, and you could fall again back into that trap. No, have I, you ever fallen, found yourself falling into that trap once you have bought something? Have you? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a there's a term out there for people that own boats and trailers. It's called two-foot-itis, and that's every time you get a new boat and you pull it up beside a, a bigger boat, you're going to wish you had that bigger boat. So it, it's it's addictive. Uh, spending can be addictive, and uh, I probably, you know, just by depriving myself, I, you're right, I'm not growing or learning anything by doing that. I'm just depriving myself or delaying uh, spending so it's probably not healthy. I, I would agree with that. I really like the point of the two-foot-itis because I think that's true for a lot of things, even if they're not massive purchases like boats or, or camper trailers, and that you, when, as soon as you start down that slope of buying things, you always want, you kind of have that taste in your mouth that you just want better and better and better of it. Well, you know, this is really pr- prominent in home renovations. I mean, if you... Uh, if you put in a new kitchen, new cabinets in your kitchen, your appliances are going to look horrible. So you're going to want to upgrade your appliances. And if you upgrade your appliances in your kitchen, you're going to look at your floor and say, oh, oh my God, this floor is horrible. So 
that 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 is a, a monster that that grows in that industry in a hurry. But again, we've been brainwashed as a society to think that way, to think that continual home improvements uh, or continual beyond home repairs is completely normal. We've been brainwashed into always wanting better, bigger, shinier, and I don't I don't know where it came from, but it's definitely something that is really it's it's hurting society. Well, they've made a whole TV industry on this, the Home and Garden Channel. I mean, there's there's extremely popular TV shows. I hear people where I work talk about some of these uh, home renovation shows, like like people talk about soap operas. I mean, they're so caught up in it, and they're, they're, they're talking about it like it was it's pure entertainment, just just TV candy to them. And that you know, next thing you know, they're at Home Depot, laying down some money on a new kitchen and or a new bathroom. So it, there's a whole industry just preying on that. And I question the return value that you get on on. Uh, I mean, everyone says you, you you get the most money back on a kitchen, but I agree with that. If you sold that house and the kitchen was new, but if you put in a new kitchen, and you live in that house for another ten years and then you sell it, well, you, you you've used up some of the life of that kitchen. So uh, that that's that that becomes pure expense at that point. So yeah, I think you get your money back if you put a kitchen in or a new bathroom and then you sell it. There's probably some return on that possibly if you did the, maybe the work yourself but uh, if you use that kitchen up i mean it becomes dated in 10 years and that that's just pure expense at that point so trevor what i'm hearing is that you may be taking the right approach and that you avoid it altogether just like sugar for example because it sounds like once you just tip look over that slope you're already tumbling down it because when you get a taste of it, you just keep going. So we'll take the kitchen renovation example. You Once you do maybe just one tiny thing, it just keeps snowballing. So almost, I don't, I wouldn't also, I would go back to your previous statement of saying maybe that's a weak way to be and say, no, that's a smart way to be in that you're taking your hands off completely and um, and, 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 and not getting involved in that to start off with. I, 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 I agree and I disagree. I think it, it shows an inner weakness that, that you don't have that self-control that you can't just do it a little bit. So yeah, I, I think I'm taking the easy road out by, by going through long periods of deprivation and, and not sort of de- developing that muscle, that ability to sort of buy something and then reduce the urge to buy more. I, I think that's a muscle that needs to be exercised and, and I, I, I'm guilty of not exercising it. And again, it's not easy to exercise that muscle when society has been normalized to think that consumer debt is okay, spending's okay, always wanting something is okay. And it's it's really going to take a huge shift. I don't actually, maybe, I don't think it would even happen where you start, you start denormalizing this because corporations are always going to be taking over consumers. It's always going to work that way. Well, you know, here's one way of looking at it. If, if you have any kind of consumer debt, and then you you get your paycheck and you go out and you buy groceries and you go to the movies and you pay cash for that you're in essence you're doing all of that on credit because you made a conscious decision to not take your paycheck and reduce your debt so even though you're actually paying cash for things it's an it's a decision you made to not pay off your debt so everything that you pay cash for you're you're in essence doing it all on credit because you you, you could have used that money to pay off your debt, but you didn't. I like that point, but does it not go back to this article's point of making room for fun? Well, you have to make room for fun that you can afford. 
at the end of the day, we're all working with the same math where we have to spend less than we earn. So making room for fun while you're carrying consumer debt, I think that's a bad idea. So Trevor, what I'm hearing in this totality is that you have actually developed an immense self of de- sense of self-discipline because they say that if you are able to delay that sense of gratification for a long period of time, you will get uh, you will get stronger. So in an essence, over the period of your life, you have given up spending spending short term, clearing off your debt, and now you're just starting to satisfy uh, satisfy your needs. Well, you know what? Funny you say that is. The longer you live uh, a frugal lifestyle, the easier it becomes. So as, as I'm getting uh, a greater supply of money, I'm feeling less and less of a need to spend it. So I, in a way, I've, I've sort of exercised that, that frugal muscle to not want to, uh, to want to just focus on my needs and not my wants. And... It's it's funny that you mentioned that the more you are frugal, the more the more it just becomes natural. Because I actually did read an article in Cosmo- Cosmopolitan, surprisingly, on this one woman who bought nothing for a whole year and saved twenty three thousand. Um, and when she when she said that she bought nothing for a year, it was nothing frivolous. So she she bought the bare essentials, basic toiletries, toothpaste, deodorant, shampoo. Um, and had a weekly um, grocery goal of $35 for both her and her husband. And she says by the end of that year that she she actually didn't feel the need to spend. So she went extremely frugal to the extreme where she didn't buy new clothes. She didn't get a, she didn't even get a haircut in this article, it says. But she she really she really learned how to be frugal and actually embraced it. And that's the way she wanted to be moving forward from that year. So I really do think it um, it changes you. Yeah, that's an interesting story. But I, after a year of that, I could see how, you know, you you would have convinced yourself that you really don't need all those shiny things. Definitely. And that's why I think it's important for our listeners to note that being coming frugal, becoming a minimalist, just changing your ways is not something that's going to happen overnight. So you have to be patient with yourself and you have to take time to know, yes, I will make mistakes. I won't follow exactly what I want to do. But as long as you're being just conscious and aware of how you want to be I think that's what's really important because again regardless of how old you are you spent your whole life with this one mentality of the way you spend money so you can expect yourself to change overnight or or take up a new life philosophy it's going to take time but I think it's all about where your heart's at and and how and how conscious you are and willing and self-determined you are to get there yeah you know if you think of uh our society kids go off to university and as we're Doing that, most of them have to live a fairly frugal life. I think you would agree that that you do. And oh yes, definitely. And if you could just continue on that pattern, and and with that those frugal ways, you would you would get so far ahead financially. But Pete, but the marketing or companies in market to that age group that that get that first job, convincing them what they need, what they should have, how they should look. That that that's where if you could stay on the rails of frugality at that point and just continue on, you could set yourself up for life. Oh, I completely agree. I I think every individual should have to attend a post secondary, even move away from home spe- specifically, because I know a lot of post secondary students do live at home, which is great because they can save and they can uh, save on groceries and maybe transportation. But I think there is something so beneficial to being launched into into the student-deprived lifestyle 
where you are forced to be frugal and you're forced to learn those skills over two or three or four years. And I agree with you. If, if, if students can continue living that frugal, not student deprived lifestyle, but frugal lifestyle and just keep embracing those, those uh, skills they've been like, honing for the past four years, I think we'd be a lot better off. You got to wonder where it falls apart because that that really is the the foundation. I mean, if you can do that for four years, you could do it for ten years. I I don't understand how that falls apart. Because, but Trevor, I think I think you hit it um, when you previously when you said that it's it's marketing. Marketing says that you're free. You've been waiting for four years to spend on luxurious items. This is your time to shine. Yeah. So maybe practicing frugality doesn't work really the concept because you I mean a lot of these people coming out of school they just have this buildup of wants that they just can't wait to satisfy and those first paychecks there's they're spending those they're 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 putting money down on, on on all sorts of shiny things that they want not necessarily need but again you have to look at it by a case by case basis whose wants are those actually are they the individual's wants or what corporations are telling those individuals they should want. I think that's a huge difference. You know, it's true. Uh, I, I mean, the number of people that come out of university get their first job and buy a brand new car. The Just because society says that's what you should do. Yeah, but where I, you know, a, a three or four-year-old car at half the price would have would have sufficed. I know as I'm finishing up post-secondary myself, I think there's this really big misconceived notion about what it means to graduate and be an adult. I, that's such a fluffy word, but I feel like there, I'm an adult now. I am done school. This is how I have to behave, how I have to dress, what I have to drive, where I have to go to eat out. I think, I think there's just so much pressure to be a certain way in order to fit in and in, or in order to be that person you want to become after you graduate. And, I wish we could all just stop and take a second and really evaluate who who are we who are we and whose goals are we trying to fulfill? Well, these new graduates, they come out of school and the first thing they do is acquire debt. And once they do that, now they have they've they've solidified they're now looking for not interesting in uh, engaging work. They're looking for a paycheck to cover these debts. And to me that is a they've just set themselves on a path for uh, for misery, because what's going to happen is that they're going to be in a in a soul sucking job that that delivers the amount of pay they need to cover their their financial obligations, and as a reward for working forty hours at that forty to eighty hours in the, in that that job they don't like, they're going to go out and buy more shiny things, acquire more debt, and they're going to continue to need that income stream to cover those obligations, rather than finding engaging work where they're learning, building skills getting valuable experience that, that they could maybe end up with a, a more income down the road. And that's on top of student debt, too, if students are walking away with post-secondary debt. And, and, you, and you know what? The society as a whole is going to benefit from students not acquiring debt because you're going to have more passionate people who are, are in jobs that they, that they want to be, not because they, they have to be. Well, society as a whole, not car makers... You know, they're counting on those people to come up and sign up for, for car loans and, and things like that. But I think you're right. As a society overall, we'd probably be better off. But at the same time, as we're saying this, society also dictates what corporations are going to offer. So if, if 
our generation coming into post-secondary wants more economical, frugal options. Maybe they'll lower the the bus pass uh, fee. Like maybe maybe things like that. Maybe they'll make more economical cars or different options to really cater to a frugal generation. That would be the only way that that would work. No, I would agree with that. Yeah. Because consumers make the demands and corporations provide the supply of that. So I really think it's going to take a wholesale shift from us. But it's nice to know that we, the consumers, have the power to create that shift. Trevor, I just moving through the article, back to it. Um, seeking assistance is the last piece. So in your life, who has been your number one role model and who do you go to for assistance? It's funny, my, my parents are of the baby boomer generation and they... Uh, they made a lot of money, but they spent a lot of money. And I, I look back at my one of my my one grandfather who was extremely frugal, and I could never wrap my head around uh, how he was always sort of buying things secondhand and and making do with uh, um, with things that I I said, well, gee, that's broken. Why don't you get a new one? And he says, oh no, I can fix this. He was always fixing stuff and always making do, but he seemed extremely happy. And so as I got older. I would go to him for financial advice, but, you know, he he didn't seem like a financial wizard, but I, I understood that he was frugal and he he enjoyed, he always seemed happy and enjoying himself. And so I would say to people, seek out somebody who seems content and happy for financial advice. And, and you, you'll probably get better advice from a person like that. At what point or age in your life did you notice or, or no, more appreciate what he was doing. Well, it's when I started working and earning money and, and having bills to pay, I, I sort of looked at him and he was never complaining, always content. And I use that word content because that was the key. Whatever he was doing, he was one of the happiest people I knew. And I thought, what well, you know, I want that. You know, I, he, he had a job and everything, but he just was never stressed out, always content. And, and I, I just idolized that. Do you think the only way you were able to see how content he was is because you had your parents at the opposite end of the spectrum to compare him to? Well, not only that, my other grandfathers, the other side of the family, he was always, uh, he seemed agitated and, and, and often stressed out. And he always seemed to be working, like going to work. And uh, so I had those t- that contrast. So... Not not my my parents as much because they were of a g- different generation and but just I could see those two grandparents and I could see I don't know why I could see I guess because my parents I was sort of too close to to stand back and look at at the whole situation whereas my grandparents were more of acquaintances where I could sort of you know stand back and, and see the whole picture. What's your advice to any listener who maybe doesn't have that strong of a support system that you're describing? What can they turn to? Who can they look to for inspiration? Or, or do they look to the people that they don't want to be like and be the opposite of? Well, I know I, when the first job I had, there was a guy I worked. I, I remember these two individuals. One was uh, a very angry, sort of uh, upset and agitated person all the time. And another guy, again, he was very uh, calm and happy-go-lucky, didn't seem to have a care in the world. I mean, just look for people like that. I mean, look for people who just seem content and 
and pick their brain. Ask them, you know, what, how do they, I mean, you can't get too personal with strangers, but I mean, people you work with, there's always going to be a role model. There's someone you just have to have your eyes open to see it. How important has an accountability partner been in your life and how important do you think it is for our listeners to have one or do you think they can, certain listeners can get by without someone being there to be accountable? Well, a spouse is probably the best uh, accountability partner. I have the good fortunes of a, of a wife who grew up in a very frugal household and she's very frugal herself, very content, um, never wanting things, just happy with what she has. And I have the luxury of, Whenever I'm thinking of spending money, I'm not asking for her approval, but I'm asking her opinion. You know, do you, do you think I need this? And I value her opinion greatly because she will, you know, she'll ask the right questions. She'll she'll try to figure out if it's a want or a need I'm trying to satisfy. Like she'll she'll go with that next level. So you need somebody in your life who really has your best interests at heart. And a spouse is quite often that person. And I have the good fortune to have a very frugal frugal spouse who who really helps me put perspective on things I'm thinking of buying. For instance, I was thinking of buying a real high-end road bike, bicycle, you know, a carbon fiber, uh, ultra light, you know, I think they weigh 30 pounds or no, I think they weigh like 15 pounds. You can hold it with one hand. And it was, I think it was going to cost like $2,800. And uh, I was going on the, I was looking at the internet, I was sort of making a short list of ones I, I really, really thought I wanted. And I knew some guys at work that had them and I was getting their opinions and I was going to go to bike shows. And uh, my wife, you know, she says, so what do you want this real expensive bike for? And I go, oh, I'm going to ride it like all the time. And I have a bike in the garage that I, I barely ride. And she was saying, so how is it different from that other one? I, I could ride it, I, you know, I think I ride it faster and further. And, you know, she sort of got to the point, well, you actually have to get out and get on that bike. You know, why, why don't you ride the bike you have and, you know, exhaust that as, you know, is a lim- reach the limitations of the bike you currently have. And, and then if you still need more bike, go get it. And so she, she talked that through, like, she, so she didn't just squash my ideas and, and say, oh, that's a bad idea. You know, she sort of reasoned through it with me and sort of gave me her perspective. And it's that kind of input that, that you really need to save yourself from yourself. I really like how you you brought us the example because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who who are maybe worried or concerned. I know it's even a concern of mine. Does my potential partner need to have the same views on money that I have in personal finance? To what extent would you say that the success of your relationship with your wife and being kind of opposites and really balancing each other out as opposed to people with the same views, where where does that where does everything fit in on the continuum? Well, if you read up statistics, and I, I've looked this up, and I'm going to just, I don't know the actual numbers, but there's, there's three factors that break up a relationship. There's infidelity, substance abuse, and money. Those are the three deal breakers for a lot of couples. You know, if you, if you read about um, marriage counselors, you know, those are the things they're, 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 they struggle with, couples struggle with. So, I mean, money that, that puts it on those three levels. I mean, that, if that's perspective, I think it's, it's as important as, as substance abuse and when I say substance abuse, I'm talking alcohol and drugs and infidelity and, and money. I mean, those three things break up more marriages than anything else. But from the sounds of it, you and your wife have two different looks at spending and the definition of frugality. So how did, how did, how did that work? 
Well, I, I think we we balanced and checked each other. Like, you know, I would see she would be making do with something maybe more more than she should, and I would sort of convince her to, to replace some worn out whatever. And and she she would, and then she would be pulling the reins back on me. So I think between the two, we found a, a good balance. But it takes an open-mindedness and, and uh, an appreciation for the other person's point of view. I was going to say, I feel like those last two pieces are so critical because you, you really just have to respect how the other person views money in order to make it work. And at the end of the day, it sounds like that's the only option there is because, again, I, your your wife has probably stopped you from buying things. But like you said, you've encouraged her to buy things that she needed to buy, So, which, which wouldn't probably have happened either way. Maybe you'd be in a lot more debt without her and she would just maybe living a overly frugal life. So I definitely think there is balance as like everything. Yeah. And you really need that constant dialogue and that open mindedness and, and just knowing that your, 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 your spouse or your partner is, is in it with you. Another thing that helps is, uh, you know, I, I'll talk to other couples and people I know or work with where the, the two spouses keep their money separate. And that's not really that uncommon. I know a lot of couples that do it. And I think it's a, it's a recipe for potential disaster. And we've always kept our money together. You know, I, I, I earn more, but it, it, we, it's one pool of money. We're in it together. Um, it, it, I think that makes a big difference as well. Before the show, you were actually talking about your allowance system. Can you enlighten our listeners on that? Well, we give ourselves a, a small allowance. And I... I won't say the amount, but it's it's insignificant amount that we give it, and it's just spending money. And you know, just say I wanted to buy uh, a dozen roses for my wife on Valentine's Day. I mean, the, that personal spending is something I'd use. Or if I wanted to buy a book, uh, I read a lot of books. So that's so it's just insi- you know m- minimal type of spending. But for any significant purchase, like say I wanted to buy a new computer. Um, I don't want that. I, I I want that money to come out of this, our our joint, you know, our, our our money, meaning mine and my wife's. So she's aware of it because I want her input. I want her feedback. You know, is this a good idea or am I crazy? So it it it, re- it requires me to consult my wife on 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 purchases to to just you know put some pers- per- perspective around it. Is it is this a crazy thing to do? You know. Th- I'd read an article, and I can't remember where it was, and this is a few years ago, but it was a, a marriage counselor would, every time they had couples come in for counseling, one of the questions they asked each of the, you know, the husband and the wife, how much would you spend, how much money would you spend without consulting your partner? And uh, some of the numbers were astronomical, like, but the average was around $1,000 for these people. They, you know, they would spend 1000 anything over $1,000, they would feel guilty enough that they should consult their spouse. That's a, that's a phenomenal piece, of, an example. I, I, I think that's really eye-opening in itself. Um, Trevor, before we end this episode, I do have uh, a question about budgeting. What are, what are a few tips to, uh, to, to inspire our listeners to maybe start the budget they've always been wanting to start? Well, the, the, the main thing is make it easy. So, so don't create... Uh, hundreds of of spending categories where you have to dissect every uh expense and 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 it becomes 
just so time consuming. You do have to invest time in it, but don't make it so time consuming that it's just an overwhelming task. Uh, it can be as simple as a spreadsheet. It can be as complicated as a high-end piece of software, but it's it's this, the the daily discipline or the weekly discipline of of looking at those those receipts and those bills that that's going to make it work. And I'll, I'll give an example by too many categories. For instance, food and um, cleaning supplies and personal hygiene products. You could split those out, but what what's the gain? You know. If if your spending's too high, are you going to not clean your house? Are you not going to buy deodorant, or, or are you going to eat less food? The answer to those is probably no, right? Those are, are survival things. I'm going to call them. So there's no sense splitting those costs out. But maybe you're you you have a, a, a internet cable and telephone with with one company, like say Bell. Those costs are probably worth splitting out, so you know. You know, I I could downgrade my cable package. I you know I could downgrade my internet package. So you you've got to sort of look at uh, this thing talked about. You know, variable and fixed. Assume they're all variable, but well, split them out so if you could make a decision about you know each one, and so then then that financial information put together is going to add value. When it comes time to cut costs, y- it's fine enough that you could you could decide where you're going to cut your costs, but it's it's not to find that it's a lot of work to do. Those are some fantastic tips, Trevor, and definitely some realistic ones that will hopefully help our listeners apply to their budget. So before we do end this episode, is there any final Simple Money Solution takeaways for our listeners? I'm going to say it's important to create a financial budget or a financial plan. It is not a, a, a tool to restrict you. It's a tool to help you plan your financial future. So well said. So before we end this episode, we do want to share with you that to kick off 2017, we're doing a year of monthly challenges. So the first one is going to start in February, and it's called Frugality February. We're not going to share what the challenge is yet, but stay tuned. We will release it either next week or the week after. So just keep listening. And the challenge is every challenge is going to end with some kind of giveaway so you can look forward to that. We'll explain the rules and everything like that in our upcoming episodes. But just get excited for that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a great year. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please be sure to check out the show notes at livelifesimple.ca. Give the show a rating on iTunes. Check out all our social media platforms. Leave a comment. Send us an email. Touch base with us. We'd love to hear from you. And until next week, keep it simple.